It's about more than just glue. It's about black people, poor people, everybody at the bottom. I need to speak for him. You would think we could never achieve the inconceivable. We don't belong, but we here unbelievable. When you're ready to talk, you talk. Don't ever let nobody make you be quiet. I ain't named you Star by accident. Hello, and welcome to another Slate Spoiler Special. I'm Marissa Martinelli, an assistant editor here at Slate, and today we're spoiling The Hate You Give, the movie starring Amanda Stenberg based on the YA novel of the same name by Angie Thomas. The Hate You Give follows Star Carter, a teenage girl who is constantly switching between two worlds, her hometown, which is predominantly black and poor, and the elite prep school where the student body is mostly white and wealthy. Star is forced to rethink her place in both worlds after a traffic stop, during which a white police officer shoots her childhood best friend Khalil, who is unarmed, and Star is the only witness. Here to talk with me about the movie is Slate Culture writer Ingu Kang. Hello, Ingu. Hi. And here in the studio, we have editorial assistant Rachel Hampton. Hi, Rachel. Hello. So Rachel and I saw this movie last night, and I think we both cried continuously throughout the movie. Ingu, was that true for you as well? I believe so. How soon did you start crying? I was already emotional during the very first scene of this movie, which was uh, Russell Hornsby, who is phenomenal. This Mm -hmm. is a phenomenal performance. Uh, It's a sort of dinner table scene, and he is giving his three kids the talk. Uh, And I say three kids, even though one of them is only one year old. And so we get Star's voiceover uh, talking about how she's nine years old, her brother is 10, and they're learning at this young age what to do if they are pulled over by a police officer or if their father is pulled over by a police officer. Keep their hands on the dashboard, stay polite and calm, don't give any more information than you have to. It's a very intense scene, and it's made all the more intense by the fact that there is this one-year-old baby who's also in the room, and Star's voiceover says Sakani was one-year-old when he got the talk. Yeah, that felt honestly really true to life for me as a Black woman. I'm really curious as to how, I guess, you guys have ever seen that talk represented. Like, have you only have you ever had any kind of talk similar to that? Or if how, did, how have you guys seen this talk before? And is, has this, did this scene feel intense because it's something, like, pretty new? I don't think I've ever seen the talk on film like that. I mean, I've uh, certainly I've heard about it, but as a white person, it has never been an issue beyond just the casual, like, don't mess with police. But it was so visceral, especially because Hornsby gives such a, an intense performance. And then at the end, he hands out the Black Panther pamphlets. Mm-hmm. And they're so young. And I mean, it, it really hit home. If I recall correctly, I think I saw some version of the talk uh, when I used to watch The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an episode where either Will or Carlton gets pulled over and they get, I think it was Carlton and Carlton didn't understand like why he should be discriminated against. And Will was just like, this is just like what the reality of like our life is. Yeah, I remember that episode. That was a really good episode. I remember my that parents was. showing that to me. <laughs> Even though I think I'd already had to talk at that point, but they were just like, this is, like, you have to, you kind of gets beat in your head over and over. And so this felt very, very true to life. Um, especially also in her prep school felt so real as someone who's grown up in a predominantly white spaces and the ways in which you interact in that space where she's like, I can't use the same slang that my my fellow students are using i can't her white classmates yeah her white classmates are using and i can't listen to the same music i can't do all these things because when they do it it's cool and when i do it it's hood and the way in which she has to move through these spaces and doesn't feel entirely comfortable in either i feel like when we talk about code switching it's kind of always a benefit for people who can do it, but we don't really talk about what's lost when you're constantly switching in between spaces and whether or not you can really feel at home in either when you have this kind of other world residing within you. An interesting point that Star explicitly states early in the movie, because she does deliver voiceover throughout, is that she doesn't feel like herself at school, but she also doesn't feel like herself at home, 
which is interesting. There's an element of her that is Williamson star that she doesn't shake necessarily when she goes home. Mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting, especially considering I felt that the Williamson side of her story was less fleshed out. Mm. The characters on that side of the story, except with the exception maybe of her boyfriend, Chris, uh, th- her friends seemed very one-dimensional uh, in a way that, like, she has her one friend, Haley, who we learn is racist later in the movie. And then she has another friend, Maya, who is sort of on the edges and like, you guys haven't figured this out yet. Mm-hmm. And then later in the movie, she's like, oh, my gosh, that's racist. <laughs> but she didn't have very much to do. Uh, did you feel the same way, guys? I want to push back on what Marissa said, actually. <laughs> push back, <laughs> you. I feel like. One of the things I loved about this movie is I felt like it got the white characters down so well. And I think in a show like Blackish or a show like Insecure, where you have these uh, um, other black protagonists who go to their uh, white dominated work. A place of work and they have to sort of like navigate being like the only black person at like their place of work I always find those scenes to be like really over the top and like the white people are caricatures and it like always takes me out of those shows and I feel like in contrast the fact that um Star is so repressed and so self-protective to like this unhealthy degree And the fact that, like, race seems to have never been this issue that was, like, brought up with her racist friend. And that's why they were able to be friends and the rupture in their friendship once anything of race comes up. Like, that felt really real to me. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I think there are ways in which when you're oppressing a part of yourself in these white-only spaces that your friends that are white, that you consider friends are just caricatures and very flat because it's like when Chris at some point is like, I don't see color. I don't see that you're black. And Star's like, if you don't see that I'm black, you don't see me. And so I think the fact that her friends like Haley and Maya felt kind of very flat is because in truth, their relationship was like very surface level Mm -hmm. because they didn't see her. I guess part of my confusion is that I never really understood the appeal of Chris as a boyfriend. Same. (laughs) When we first are introduced to him, Star is mad because he pulled out a condom the last time that they were together out of the blue. And his apology for that, I mean, involves just like sticking headphones on her and like, I made this beat for you. (laughs) And I think she even says in the voiceover, some people would accuse him of acting black, but that's just who he is. And I just did not understand (laughs) the appeal of this boy at all. And but I, but I think, think we're supposed to because in the movie, I mean, at the end, they are together. And I think it was suggested that he went through some sort of journey, but I wasn't <laughs> seeing it. I think his journey was that, um, I mean, this is a spoiler special, but when the protests at the end happens, he doesn't. He shows like, up. Yeah, exactly. He shows up and he looks terrified, but then he doesn't tell, he's not, he doesn't say to Star, let's get out of here. He's like, what can I do to help you? And I think that that is kind of the journey as far as the developmental angle of Chris's character is going to get. I think that's really honestly for like a 16 year old white man to not center himself in a space like that where he is so obviously the only white person there and it's violent and wearing like a blazer exactly wearing like a blazer driving a Range Rover for him to not be like my car is going to get stolen or all this stuff is going to happen for him to be like I'm going to look out for you and basically take care of your friends who I just met and your brother who I also just met your family that you haven't introduced me to over the past six months I do I was thinking about this last night because at first I was like I don't understand why he's in this movie I don't understand if I'm supposed to be rooting for the relationship but I do think that if not in words and actions then he does have like a pretty significant character arc I think also like what I really like about the role that this character plays is that when you first meet him and he likes to 
you know, listen to a certain type of music and dance in a certain way. We're not really sure if he's dating her because he likes her or if he's dating her because he's fetishizing her as like one of the very few black um as one of the very few black students at the school, right? And the fact that he ultimately ends up being a person who can, like, learn from his mistakes and, like, figure out how to be a good ally. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves, so let's back up and talk about why Chris winds up at a protest in the first place. True. So we get to know Star and a little bit about her life. Mm -hmm. At Williamson, she has to act one way. At home, she acts a different way. We see her at a house party, and we get the sense that she's sort of an outsider in both worlds. You know, she's not really—people make comments about how she's dressed at the party, about the way she speaks. And what happens next? Rachel. So she's at this party and she bumps into a friend, childhood friend she hasn't seen in a while, Khalil. Um, and just as they're kind of reconnecting, shots are fired at the party. Everyone like leaves and Khalil drives Star home. And they're in this car and they stop. They share this like really cute moment. And here's kind of where I set this in rest last night. I was like, I, I love the movie, but I wish in some ways that all coming of age movies about black kids didn't involve police violence if we could just have the first 30 minutes of this movie expanded to like two hours and it just be kind of like a traditional team rom-com i would have loved it so khalil and star in the car they share a kiss stars like i have a boyfriend and then khalil says this really cute line where he's like we've known each other our entire lives we have our entire lives to basically reconnect and then they start he starts driving her home and a police officer pulls him over. They've been driving for maybe 10 seconds. And the police officer pulls him over for failure to signal or something. And stars. There's reason- no one on this road. There's like- no one on this road besides this cop car. And it feels like they the cop car has basically followed them. And so Khalil gets out the car and he's kind of combative in a way that is very valid and that he's getting pulled over for no reason. Star obviously is thinking about what her dad told her about the talk. And has her hands on the dashboard. She tries to pull out her phone. She tries to pull her phone and he tells her, the cop tells her to put the phone down. Um, She drops her phone. Khalil gets out the car, gives the police officer license and registration. And he's kind of joking around. Stars fumbling around in the car trying to find her phone. And she pulls all the stuff up onto a seat. And he, Khalil grabs his hairbrush and is about to brush his hair. And the police officer shoots him because he thinks it's a weapon. Um, And that is what is pretty much the entire momentum that's a climax a bit of the movie in that this police shooting changes star's life cleo dies and the police officer is about to go to the shooting's about to go to a grand jury to basically find out if he's going to get indicted and i mean we've seen the scene play out in real life so many times and i still felt myself have hope that he was going to get indicted even though that never happens in Mm. real life and it would not have felt true to life if he did get indicted but i still had hope (laughs) and so yeah so khalil dies and star is basically trying to figure out how she's going to play this because she doesn't want to be seen at school as this poor kid whose best friend got shot by police but she also, she saw her friend, another friend died when she was 10 and felt like she didn't help her. And she wants to speak for Khalil. And so she's struggling. Her mom wants her to stay, be safe because she knows that witnesses in these cases get death threats. Her dad is kind of this radical figure who is like, we, you, like, if you want to speak, you should speak. And so it's this tension between, in Star, between trying to, basically keep her life on the rails and knowing that it's gone completely off the rails with what she's seen. To your point earlier, this very much had the makings of like a romantic Mm -hmm. comedy up until the shooting. Yeah. You have 
the prep school boyfriend whose appeal is <laughs> kind of wishy-washy. <laughs> and then you have this person who she has history with and they have such good chemistry and she and Khalil share the kiss and he's respectful, which is mm-hmm. a contrast to what we've just learned about the boyfriend. And then everything goes sideways. Exactly. And I think that that's so powerful in its own ways and that the tenderness between Star's parents is so... You so rarely see black love portrayed so well in such... An, it was... I don't even know how to... I don't have words for how, I guess, a scene I felt. Like, that's a scene I've watched with my parents so many times. And there are so many ways in which just that first 30 minutes was so masterfully done. And it also just shows the human impact of these moments that we keep seeing played out on, on our Twitter timeline and on the news. Where we're like, oh, this is just... This family is defined by this moment. And I think this movie did a very good job in the first 30 minutes setting up that it is police brutality and discrimination is defining, but there's so much more to these neighborhoods and these people than this violence has enacted on them. So I think we should note that there's the one way in which um, I thought the movie was very true to life. And then the one way in which Star is actually quite different from her real life counterparts. There's like one of the reasons why she decides she's going to speak out eventually and expose herself to all sorts of horrors um, is that the police and the media start portraying Khalil as basically a thug, right? Um, He was like a gangster and like maybe he was involved with drugs. And then there's this like incredibly unflattering news segment where his mom, who used to be an addict, it looks completely disheveled because she's in mourning. And basically, she kind of just looks crazy. And so there's this, like, implication almost that, like, well, this kid was never going to go anywhere. So, like, why even bother caring if he's dead? And so you see that apparatus going on. Um, but at the same time, Star is protected in a way because her uncle, played by Common, is on the police force. And initially, when she goes to the police station for the first time to give her statement about the police shooting, she's in immediately um, intimidated by the police officers who are interrogating her because they want her to sort of like change her story and ultimately uh star's uncle the cop comes in and sort of is like you're not going to do this to my niece um which i thought was like pretty important right it's interesting because star in deciding whether or not she's going to testify and deciding whether she's going to speak to the media is worried about backlash on two different fronts from the police as a witness to a police shooting in a neighborhood where black people are being policed by a predominantly white force and also from the gangs within the community because Khalil was dealing drugs and star explains very eloquently why that is. His grandmother has, is, has cancer. She's in chemo. He's, you know, doesn't have other options available to him to make money. And so he's sort of fallen into this life. So she has it coming from two fronts. She's worried about backlash from the authority and the police, but also from school and the school. Yes, definitely. And then also, on the other hand, from the gangs, especially from King, who is sort of the local drug lord, who her father has, uh, you know, was previously part of his gang. And he went to prison for him for I think it was three years, three years. Yeah. And that was his ticket out is that he served the time to protect King, and now he's clean. He has a grocery store. Uh, so it's, that King bought for him. Did he? That's what he yeah. says. I think there's, like, a little bit of contention where King is like, well, I'm sort of like your patron, and you're able to have this life because I bought you the store that now you can run. But um, the father's perspective on this is like, well, I earned this grocery store because I went to jail for you. And he seems, he's definitely portrayed as self-made. Early on in Star's narration, she talks about how the store is a hub in the local community and people go there because they want to talk to Maverick. Yeah. Uh, also, Russell Hornsby as Maverick Carter was phenomenal. So good. He was so good in this movie. I mean, who isn't good in this movie? You know? 
Like everyone's true. really great, except it, I'm going to, I'm going to say <laughs> something maybe blasphemous. So Issa Rae plays this um, community organizer or lawyer who comes in and is one of the people who is in, who is organizing protests on behalf of Khalil Um like at the funeral and then after, and she wants to continue making this into like a giant national spectacle so that people will pay attention to Khalil's death. And she is one of the people who is pressuring um, Star to also speak out because Star has the option of speaking out or not doing so. And I every time she came on, I was like, mm, you don't have like the gravitas for this role yet. I will say I I agree with that in that I think Issa Rae in this movie felt like Issa from Insecure. I didn't exactly. buy her as a lawyer quite. And I don't know if it's just because that's the only role I've seen her in as Issa in Insecure. But I don't know. It just, yeah, I don't know if she quite had, I guess, the weight that that role required. It didn't quite feel like that role was as weighty as it should have been. I was also very conscious of Common being Common <laughs> yeah. just because of who he is uh, in the role as Carlos, the police officer who's also Star's uncle. He, it's just, I don't know, something, I think it's like the risk when someone is that recognizable mm-hmm. and they're among all these actors who do blend a little bit better. Uh, Regina Hall is phenomenal Regina in this Regina Hall movie. is really great. I, she had a great line about how her primary role is to make sure star is safe mm-hmm. where i was already crying but if i hadn't been crying oh my gosh there were so many <laughs> tears cried some more. this movie the lady next to me offered me a napkin because i was crying so much i was oh. just like no it's fine i'll just keep using my sweater sleeves <laughs> it was i have yeah. to say when regina hall was sort of using that argument and i was i think and like this movie doesn't really get into like online culture too much but when Star's mom was talking about how she wants to protect Star from like further ugliness. I was like, oh yeah, like your life is going to be horrible for the rest of your life. Your Google results are going to be insane as long as you live. Like I am totally with you, Regina Hall. Like don't let her speak in front of the grand jury, Uh, which obviously is not like where the movie was meant to go. But I think also shows like how much as much as this is like a political issue, it's also such a human issue issue and that domestic argument really was compelling you know like you know eventually that she's going to speak out in front of the grand jury but the sort of decision and like the tension of getting to that decision I thought was like really well earned yeah I think this movie did a really good job of showing not just the like the class police brutality is so often portrayed as a life loss, but the lives that rotate around the person who was killed, the people who stand up, you see them in the news for maybe two days. You see like videos of them on your Twitter feed, but you don't really see what the cost of standing up does. And I think this really like there are ways in which we've forgotten what Ferguson was like, because it's just a name at this point. Like Black Lives Matter is a hashtag and Ferguson happened in 2014. And we're all kind of like, oh, yeah. I forgot that, like, the Human Rights Watch said that we were terrible. And it was the first time that ever it happened in the United States. And then in the protest scene when they were, like, shooting all the tear gas, I was so... When Issa Rae led that Asada Shakur chant, there were so many ways in which I was reminded of the fact that this was not that many years ago. And it's so easy to figure it out so many years ago with what's happening around us. And I think this movie very, like, viscerally placed me back in, like, 2014, 2015, 2016, when, like, the momentum of the Black Lives Matter movement was so strong. And then, kind like, the election just was this weird, destructive force around which it's so hard to think any ground is going to be gained on something like this when everything else has gone to shit. And I think this movie was a very effective way of reminding me, at least, of that moment and what could vary is still happening. And we just don't see it as often. It just doesn't have as much pull. It's interesting because I think it speaks to the source material to an extent. So the movie's based on a YA novel by Angie Thomas, and it was inspired by the shooting of Oscar Grant originally, which it wasn't. I looked it up and it was in 2009. Mm hmm. And very little has changed, obviously. Uh, the book itself came out 
in 2017, but we even see in the movie, it's contextualized. I mean, Star posts on her Tumblr a series of images that include, you know, Sandra Bland Mm -hmm. and then Emmett Till. And one thing I loved about this movie is how it is very conscious of the internet's role in these things. I mean, even at the beginning of the movie, Star calls her parents her OTP Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) in a way that is very online. But also, I mean, when she posts on Tumblr, where a lot of online activism does take place, the movie takes it seriously. Mm -hmm. When her friend Haley, who's racist, posts like, OMG, and unfollows her, it's not petty teen drama. It is a serious affront and an indication that Haley is actually racist. Uh, And up until that point, it's kind of everyone sort of lets her nonsense go. But that is a turning point in the movie. And this is a very, I think it speaks to having a young adult perspective on this. Mm. Yeah, it felt very like teens today. In a way that's not trivialized. Yeah, yeah. I feel like a lot of, I think it handled teens today in the same way that eighth grade did, where it's so easy to look at Instagram and be like, just log off. But Mm. I think it shows both eighth grade and this movie both show the ramifications that those interactions have. Speaking of eighth grade, one of the things I also really love about this movie is that as good as it is about um, the political side of things, I also love that it was just this really wonderfully deep and complex portrait of teen life because it feels, at least looking at from things online, that there's this political momentum that's coming from teenagers. And I feel like this movie captures that better than like maybe any other movie that I've seen. Just sort of like this constant engagement. And then, I mean, in Star's case, she obviously can't help it. This tragedy happens to her. But on the other hand, I love that she has to continue being this regular teenager with regular teenage fears and concerns about like prom and all of that doesn't seem trivialized because it feels like she still has to live her daily life. And it, the movie is very good about, like, talking about how this impacts all of that, but doesn't take it over so that she's no longer a teen. Does that it's make also, sense? Yeah, yeah, it's also good about slacktivism in the scenes at her prep school mm-hmm. where there's a protest for Khalil. And at this point, no one at school knows that Star actually knew Khalil. And, and was a witness. And was a witness. And, you know, we've established that she and her brothers, her half-brother Seven are, I think, the only black students at the whole school i believe that i saw in the whole movie yeah and you get this rush of mostly white kids running through the hall excited to go to a protest because it means that they can skip school and star calls them out about it and it's really a turning point for her Mm -hmm. there are so many ways that that scene felt i went to a predominantly white university at the same time that Ferguson was happening and there are so many ways that that kind of slacktivism and online weird form of like making signs and kind of showing up was cool and saying Black Lives Matter having a Black Lives Matter sign in your window was like a sign that you were down and woke but then the same kind of I don't want to say unconscious racism that Haley embodied, but the kind of lazy racism where you're like, I have a black friend. She's fine. I think black lives matter. I'm down. But then she's like, the cops should be his family, his poor family. He was just doing his job. That kind of ingrained racism felt very, very true. I love how this movie after the shooting itself, we never hear from the cop again. Mm-hmm. We see his father on the news saying, my family's received death threats, my son's a good boy, something like that. And we get Haley defending him, but he is not even an entity. He's mm-hmm. all, he's symbolic, essentially. I don't think there's any sympathy for the cop in this case. And that just, like, he didn't help Khalil when he was shot. He didn't perform any kind of, Mm-mm. like, CPR or help for him, even though he knew he was unarmed. And I think the fact that the movie, there are ways in which the movie kind of, I wouldn't say it was chastising, but I think there are ways in which, like, Khalil not kind of following the line of, be compliant because you know what can happen 
for better or worse, the movie kind of didn't really engage with whether or not it, I'm not going to say it was his fault, but ways he had contributed to his own death. Basically. I mean, Star definitely grapples with that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think not having any sympathy for the cop, never showing him again was a really, really smart move. Although there, her, I can't tell if they were sympathetic to Common as a cop, like as a black cop. I think they're, when they had that conversation in the kitchen where Star and Carlos are talking about how he would pull someone over if he was white or black, it didn't necessarily feel like an indictment of Common. Oh, it, I thought it was. I it, thought it was completely. I don't think the question was whether he would pull him over. I think the question was like, if I shoot? recall correctly, mm-hmm. yeah, like, would you shoot if it was like a white guy versus a, a black guy when it's dark at night and you can't really see what's happening? And basically, Carlos, the uncle, says, I would probably shoot the black guy and not shoot the white guy. And Star basically says, can you even hear yourself? And then walks out of the room and that's the end of the scene. And I think we're supposed to take her side because it's a sign that like even this black cop who comes from the neighborhood but also has like moved out into like a wealthy white suburb um he's sort of like taking the side of the white cops yeah but even her walking out challenged him in that moment but you see at the end that the, she's like even dad and uncle carlos are back when and the movie wraps up basically and the protest happens it's very violent um mostly because the police escalated they are shooting tear gas canisters. They're beating people in the streets. It is very reminiscent of Ferguson. And then Star goes back to her dad's store and basically puts like milk in her eyes for her and her brother who are both affected by tear gas. And King, the drug lord, basically sets her dad's store on fire with them in the store. And there's they get out and they're like her dad and all these shop owners get them out. And there's this very, very tense standoff Mm. in which her dad and King are facing each other and are about to shoot. You can see her dad reach for her gun. You see King's hand. He doesn't have his gun. Yeah, he doesn't. So you see. It's not in his waistband. So it's not in his waistband. You see him go for his gun and it's not in his waistband. But King can't see that. He can't see like that his hands behind his back are empty. And you know something's about to happen. And then her little brother star's little brother says don't he's like five who's like yeah he's a baby he's and so he he says don't hurt my daddy and he pulls the gun out like he took his father's gun and then you see two cops drive up and there is this small black child holding a gun and it is the entire theater that we were in like slid down into their seats and just like curled in on themselves because that moment was it was so tense and stressful and basically star stands in front of her little brother so that the cops can get him and so that he basically just diffuses the entire situation but the moment before that i mean i was holding my breath yeah and this is after the they have chosen not to indict the yeah, cop who exactly shot Khalil. Yeah. so all the protests are happening because of the non-indictment yeah i don't know it was a part of me was like they can't possibly kill sakani because the mo- end of the movie is coming, and that is just too, too dark. Yeah, but I mean, but I looked it, at it, and I was like, this is Tamir Rice. This little boy can't be any older than Tamir Rice was. And this that's exactly what happened. Not, I mean, obvious situation is not exactly what happened, but when that happened, I didn't have any hope at all about what well, I was like, this kid could die, and the movie would end. And it wouldn't even feel like it hadn't already happened. Even Star standing in front of him, like, it was a beautiful symbolic gesture mm-hmm. but i also had no confidence that they were not going to shoot her or the only reason she was because her hands were up and so i mean there were so many ways in which that situation should have been de-escalated by the police rather than by a 16 year old girl and so she de-escalates the situation this is getting back to the original point i was making she de-escalates the situation about the police right? yeah right. <laughs> everyone like i'm not gonna say it wraps up neatly but it's it's very much the the same tension of just living life where you're like all this wild shit's happening and I have to deal with it but also we're gonna live our life day to day and basically her dad and Carlos the cop are she's like oh they're good now they're friends 
because there had been tension there before. And I think that that wrapping up of the family still being okay with this uncle who said, I would shoot a black guy over the white guy and kind of not ever touching on that again. I don't think that scene was as much of an indictment as common as it should have been. I would add also that the movie's essentially happy ending includes King being arrested. Yeah, by the cops. In a scene in which the police are basically like... the good guys. The good guys. She's like, oh yeah, the cops like take King down with the neighborhood. And I'm just like, I don't like... I didn't like the way... I think the movie was very good until it wrapped up. I Like, at the end, I was like, it's too many neat bows. I know that you can't really... I mean, you could have a movie where you're just like, fuck the police... But there are ways in which they were just like, oh, the police do good things sometimes. I was also like, I love, love, love this movie until the scene when Sakani has the gun. And then you get this voiceover that you've been hearing this entire time about the title of the movie, The Hate You Give. And basically, she says something along the lines of, like Sakani holding a gun and possibly getting himself shot by the police, even though he's like five. This is a result of the hate that we give. And I was like, (laughs) I was like, where is this coming from? And also it goes against like a lot of the grain of the movie. And I think that it's important to, I don't know, like, what did you guys think about this, like, sort of wrapping up of, like, her big realization when Sakani has that gun? Like, how did you guys take that? We should note that that's been a recurring theme throughout the movie. And the hate you give is first first comes up in the car with Khalil before he dies because the Tupac song is playing. And Khalil explains to Star it's uh, thug life. The hate you give little infants fucks everyone. Just to establish that. Yeah, I, like I said, was not a fan of the way this movie wrapped up. I think that that standoff would have been more powerful without, like Ingu said, the hate we give. And I'm like, who is this we that we are talking about? Is this we, like, King and the drugs? But the thing is, she explained in a voiceover why drugs flow into the communities. And she seems to understand that. But then I don't there. It felt to I, it felt almost colorblind. And there were little moments in the movie where she there's this colorblind ideology that she kind of goes through. And it's very annoying. Like there's this part where her dad sees that she's dating Chris, who's a white man. And. He says, I guess I didn't give you a good example of what a black man should be. And then Star's like, no, you gave me a good example of what a man should be. Could basically say why date her dating a white man is fine, which of course it is. Which echoes what Chris had just said in an earlier scene where he says, I don't see people by race. Yeah. And then she says to him, if you don't see my blackness, you don't see me. So she's making a strong case against colorblindness yeah. there. But it's never really... This is why I have a lot of problems with Chris as a character. (laughs) Maybe part of it is that her connection with Khalil was so strong. Yeah, they just had much better chemistry than her and KJ Apa did the entire time. Also, I feel like we should say at some point in this podcast, so when we say she, we're referring to Star because Amanda goes by they, them pronouns. And so she is referring to Star, not to Amanda. And so, yeah, Star and Khalil had much better chemistry than Star and Chris did. And I just feel like Chris kind of exposed some of the internal dissonance of the movie. And yeah, there were just some weird ways in which even though she has this whole diatribe against colorblind ideology that she kind of traffics in it. It's weird. This movie to me was especially interesting as part of a trifecta of movies about black protagonists navigating white spaces this year uh one of which is sorry to bother you which explicitly deals with code switching uh and the other is of course black Klansman, another movie about the police and police brutality and racism and i found myself thinking a lot about black Klansmen, especially in the scenes with carlos and, and with the wrap-up of the movie and this kind of uncertainty about what next. I mean, the movie has 
a happy ending, but it was unsatisfying in a lot of ways, I guess, because it didn't answer those questions, possibly because those questions just don't have easy answers. Yeah. I think, I don't know if the movie, as kind of irritated I am at the end, I don't know if it could have had a different end in that I think that there are ways in which police brutality flattens what most people think black people's life is like and they think we're just angry and there is a kind of sea change in which people realize that anger is valid but they also don't see anything beyond basically the trauma of being black they don't see what like normal life goes on around the trauma and so I do think the fact that the movie ended on a similar note to the beginning of the movie is powerful in and of itself and I understand why they wanted that arc to happen but I do think that moving from the very real anger that animated so much of that movie to the end was a, like very bumpy. Ingu, what did you think? I really agree with you. I think that so much of the movie is about this righteous indignation and obviously sort of like this collective trauma of having t- t- of like the awareness that like you were just like one part of this centuries-long pattern of race-based, like, terror and horror. And then for all of that to sort of say, like, and then we moved on with our lives, with our sort of, like, a happy ending where everyone got back together. It just, like, doesn't quite fit tonally. It wasn't, nothing after a particular scene was quite as satisfying to me. And the scene was where Star doesn't quite hit Haley with the hairbrush because Haley has finally like has stopped even pretending to be sympathetic to what happened to Khalil. And she basically says, although not in so many words that all lives matter and that the cop who killed Khalil was justified. I mean, she basically said blue lives matter, right? Yeah, basically. And, you know, she star who obviously was there at the actual shooting itself, pulls out a hairbrush from Haley's backpack and says, does this look like a weapon? And never quite hits her with it. But Haley falls on the ground and is like a mess and crying. And to me, that was the most powerful scene in the movie. And it made the ending... Why did it? First of all, because Amanda Steinberg gave an incredible performance and I think they're... a Um, an incredible actor but also because yeah her anger was justified there there was no you know regina hall has this scene where she talks about forgiveness and i'm glad that the movie ended with star not forgiving Haley and realizing that she was better off but i also felt like there was a tranquility to the end of the movie that wasn't really justified i mean justice was not served nothing had changed really except that a drug lord had been arrested, but the police force wasn't really, there was no change to the institution. You know what I mean? Yeah. I will say that I think one of the reasons why that scene where she wields this hairbrush against Haley is so powerful is that it's the first time she allows herself to be seen in all of her um, anger uh, at school And it's sort of like almost the first time that she is able to show emotion. And I think that she's highly aware that she could be now stereotyped as like the black angry woman at school. But her indignation is so great that like she doesn't even care like anymore. And I thought that was like pretty powerful also. I really want to know what happens her senior year because she's 16. I'm assuming (laughs) going on 17. That And she's taking the SATs, so she has to be going into either her junior or senior year. And there are so many ways in which I feel like I'm talking about my... This movie made me feel things because it felt really... I did not experience anything like this. But there are ways in which when you're like 16 or whatever and you're black and you're in these white spaces and there you try to make yourself smaller basically for the comfort of others. And you realize you can't do that anymore. And you lose friends that way. And the way Regina Hall said to her... It's not that I don't like your friends. I just don't like how you act around them is something my mother said to me so many times when I was growing up where you look at your mom and you're like, why don't you like my friends? And she's like, and you're going to realize in a few years why I don't. And my mom was right. And Regina Hall was right. 
And I really am interested in what the rest of Star's time in that high school looks like because there's no going back from that. And navigating a space as what other people view as radical is just... I don't like I don't like to overuse the word trauma, but it is an experience in and of itself. And I can't imagine that it's any easier for her to be like that at school than it was for her to like basically shrink herself. Like there are ways in which shrinking yourself is easier than it is to be what she ends up being at the end of the movie. And also I feel like she's gonna be educating Chris on why you can't say shit like I don't see you like yeah (laughs) or something like I have color where it counts on the inside as he's about to meet the family and Seven's just like oh god yeah yeah he's just like you hold that thought I I think that the scenario that you put out is really interesting because everything that Star was afraid would happen um, about her being pigeonholed as this particular type at her prep school, I think all of those fears were really valid and you really understood why she clung so tightly to, you know, making herself as invisible as possible at the school. Um, But... I don't know. Like, I, I guess that's like another element where like that, like too pat ending doesn't really give you enough space for that. Like nothing really seems to change in our school life other than not being friends with a racist anymore. I mean, in a sense, it's a typical coming of age story in that she comes into her own and there's an internal journey. I just think, yeah, I would agree that it was wrapped up very neatly. And there's a scene of her at the end in the lunchroom with Chris and Maya, Maya of like 10 spoken lines and very little (laughs) character development where I was like, is this really, is this the happy ending for her? Is that all? I mean, yeah, that seems like as happy as an ending you're going to get at a school like that, basically, which is that you have two semi-decent friends who kind of see you or are trying to see you and everyone else just thinks you're racist towards white people <laughs> wow <laughs> sounds grim when you say it like that no wow. quite literally when i left school like they were like rachel hates white men and i was like i mean not completely inaccurate but also <laughs> please calm down like me telling you that you can't say the n-word is not being racist towards you and so i oh. just that's why i just feel like this there are ways in which this movie could have been just without kind of like the primary drive like there's there are two movies in here and i think there are ways in which i would really love to see what the first 30 minutes of this movie could have and like basically the last 10 minutes of this movie could have been expanded into an entire hour and a half like what without the kind of driving force of her best friend getting shot and her basically experiencing undescribable trauma because that coming of age story is a story that the beginning arc of this movie and the ending arc of this movie happens without the middle part very often. And I've never seen it portrayed on television or on TV or on movies. And I think there are ways in which we kind of assume that the only it's like when women are only interesting in movies because they've been sexually assaulted. And I think that there are ways in which we can only conceive of black trauma as race based. And a lot of it is but a lot of it is more subtle than police brutality. And I would be very interested to see if someone could do a movie like this without that middle bit being so undeniably traumatic. What about the Fresh Prince of (laughs) (laughs) Bel-Air? Honestly, I think Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was really good, and I wish we had a show like that in, um, in 2018. I feel like I talked about this recently, but... The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was, just showed, like, everything that is the Black experience without it being about trauma. And I don't want this to be an indictment against the movie because the movie is so good. But I remember I was sitting in the beginning of eighth grade and the trailer for this came on. The trailer for, do you all know the name of the movie with Anthony Ramos that's about to come out? And Monsters they, and Men. Mon- yeah. Yeah, so Ramos Monsters movie. and Men, the trailer for this movie... The Monsters and Men movie and um, If Beale Street Could Talk all came on before eighth grade. And I think the thing about eighth grade that made it so powerful is that there was it, it showed how shitty that time can be. But 
in a very subtle way. Like there was nothing in her life that was really catastro- like catastrophic on the level that seeing your best friend shot is. And I think that that subtlety is very rarely applied to Black stories. And I think the closest we saw was Moonlight, and that was amazing. And if Beale Street could talk and Mo- if Monsters and Men both look phenomenal and this movie is phenomenal, but I am really tired of only seeing bits and pieces of my life on screen and then this overarching trauma that we all obviously are like you deal with you know i don't want all these criticisms to be basically me saying i didn't like the movie because i love the movie and marissa saw me cry for an hour and a half straight and cried next to you (laughs) yeah and regretted wearing liquid liner to this movie i'm so glad i wear waterproof my eyes were just like red it was a really great movie and i really recommend that any like we all people see it um that said there are some issues with it One thing Amanda Stenberg said in an interview that I thought was interesting is that one of the goals of this movie was to get white ladies crying. Mm. And I think that to an extent, I, I mean, I saw this as a movie that really solidified, like even seeing the talk on screen, Mm certain experiences in a way i mean you know movies can can make this stuff real especially if it's in the news constantly and it's sort of at a certain point becomes just like a never-ending cycle of horror and outrage and i mean i hope a lot of white ladies cried that is true i think there are ways in which this movie was not for me and that's what's always weird about these kind of movies is that sometimes these movies that you're reflected in are not you're preaching to the choir it's nice to see it represented, but there are other sh- there's there's shit I would like to see represented more than this. Or like it's about you, but not for you. Exactly, exactly. I think it is. Yeah. Except I uh, once again, you want to say the black experience is not not monolithic, and I have not experienced anything close to this um, besides like go- being black in a white school, which is terrible in and of itself. So, yeah. These movies are always interesting for me to watch and to talk about and that, yeah, they feel like I, I see myself visually in them and I see parts of myself in them. But I, I want to see something new at some point. And there are ways in which this movie was very new. And then there, I want to see basically a, a, a companion <laughs> movie. I want these movies to exist. At, I want there to be this movie and then a coming of age romance, like rom-com movie existing alongside each other. It doesn't, one doesn't have to preclude the other. An alternate universe version of this movie with these actors, I think would mm-hmm. do very well. Yeah. Even just like the mom and dad's storyline was so beautiful and so well acted. And I just keep coming back to that. And it was so nice to see like the first 30 minutes were so beautiful and nice. And then this thing happened and it was very good and jarring. But yeah, I don't necessarily want to be jarred every time I go see black people at a movie. Rachel, thank you so much for spoiling the hate you give. Thank you for having me. And thank you, Ingu. Um, thanks for having me. And thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like the show, rate and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil, or if you have any other feedback you'd like to share, please send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Danielle Hewitt. Production help was provided by Shirley Chan.